Good morning, everyone. Um, uh, hi, my name is Chris Ward, and uh, that's, that's not so much an introduction as it is a segue, because uh, this morning we're going to talk about names, and uh, names are important. Uh, we identify with our own name. American Airlines has 75 Chris Wards on file, which is kind of odd when I go to the airport. But anyway, um, we identify with our own name, and we identify other people with their names. As every parent knows, when the two of you try to pick a mutually agreeable name for the baby, no, we can't name the baby that because I went to third grade with a kid by that name and just won't work. So we identify with our own names and we identify uh, many, many things with other people's names. And, uh, and all of us have attended functions where, where people didn't know us, where people didn't know our names. And I don't know how many times I've been somewhere. By the way, the bar's pretty low when a color bulletin gets you notoriety. But anyway, <laughs> but anyway, I don't know how many functions I have been to where I've slapped one of these things on my chest. And, uh, and if you're in the South, you have to include your last name. Have, have you noticed that? But in the West, we don't care. All we care about is your first name. So uh, I, I you know, write down, hello, my name's Chris, put it on, and I walk away. Just for fun, I found some other funny name tags. Does anybody know who in Inigo Montoya is? And what does he say? You've killed my father. Prepare to die. That is, uh, in case you don't know, that's from a silly movie, Princess Bride, one of the characters there, famous character. Got that one off the internet. I don't want to take credit for that one. Do you guys get that joke? Thank you. Appreciate that, Brennan. Okay. Does anyone know what this is? Call me a schmill. It's a, it's a reference to Moby Dick. Very good. That's right. It's the opening line of Moby Dick. This is a trivia question for you. Does anyone know who Leslie L. King Jr. is? I didn't either, by the way. This was the original name before he changed it of President Gerald R. Ford. Anyway, th you'll probably go home, and that's the only thing you'll remember from the sermon. <laughs> but but those, those are some name tags. And name tags tell people who we are. I don't want to oversimplify that, but it actually is kind of profound. Name tags and names tell people who we are. Names are usually given to, our names are usually given to us by our parents, but what if, we, what if that didn't happen? What if we picked out our own names? What if we didn't use regular names, Bill and Mike and Jill or whatever, but instead, what if we chose phrases or labels or adjectives that uh, said something about us, that described us? What label would you choose? Or what labels would you choose? If we, did, if we did choose our own names instead of our parents, then, uh, then we'd probably choose labels that were important to us, uh, that meant something significant to us. My tag, my name tag might say, you know, hi, I'm the daughter of three girls. Daughter, I'm the father of three girls. <laughs> That'd be quite a name tag. Anyway, I'm the father of three girls because that's important to me. Um, my name tag, prob I probably would not create a name tag that said, you know, hi, I'm 49, uh, you, you know. My age is not honestly very important to me. And, and not only is it not important to me, it's not nearly important enough that I want you to know me by that name. You understand? So if I pick a label for myself, it's something I want you to know about me. And if you've ever had to do this at like a, a you know, like a icebreaker ceremony or whatever, 
you know, it's hard. If, if they say, you know, pick a name tag and you can't use your regular name, you've you got to stop from it. You've got to think, okay, what's important to me? What do I really want people to know about me? It's difficult. It takes a few minutes to come up with a good label. Picking good labels is hard. It takes a little bit of effort. Well, that's where we're headed. In the book of John, uh, you can head there if you like, but in the, in the book of John, Jesus picked labels for himself. Jesus took the time to think of seven really good name tags that he wore and wears for all eternity. And that's why your little note sheet is name tag themed. We are going to look at the seven name tags that Jesus picked. And, um, and if we look at the labels he chose, we, uh, I'm hoping that we can learn uh, which characteristics he wanted us to know about and which characteristics of him he wanted us to remember. Does this interest you? Because this really intrigued me. This, was, this has really captivated my imagination for some time. And, uh, and, but, and it actually gets a little bit better. Because not only, did Je- not only did Jesus pick names, he picked seven names. Um, now, in the Bible, uh, the number seven frequently is significant. Now, um, the whole universe, God created the whole universe in seven days. And at the, in the book of Revelation, it says seven, in seven plagues, he'll take it back out. There is uh, also in Revelation, there's this cool image of God the Father sitting on a throne. And he has a scroll, a legal document that no one can open uh, because no one has the authority. And it's sealed, like with a wax seal. And it's not hard to break a wax seal, click. But the fact is, it's sealed, and no one has the authority to open because no one has the authority to break the seal. And not only that, it's, it's so unopenable, it's sealed with seven seals. It's like to the max. And uh, in Matthew, there's a passage where Peter comes in with some degree of frustration to Jesus. And he says, how many times do I have to forgive somebody? Because this guy's driving me nuts. I mean, what is the maximum number of times I should ever have to forgive anyone? Seven? Surely not more than seven, right? And that's the number he chose. And of course, what did Jesus say? Not seven, but seven times 70, which just kind of shows that Jesus is extending this same metaphor to seven as, you know, kind of representative of wholeness. I don't mean the opposite of brokenness. I mean the opposite of uh, portion, wholeness, completeness, entirety, like something to the point of exhaustion. So so having, having said all that, Jesus picked names, and we want to know what those names are, and Jesus picked seven. Jesus picked seven names for himself. Uh, now, perhaps if we understand the, the names that Jesus picked out for himself, um, we would understand all we need to know about who he is. Uh, that's, that's a mouthful. You kind of have to ponder that before you actually bite into it. Jesus has names, and he picked seven therefore implying that perhaps his names are all we need to know about who he is. That's not all there is to know about him. It's not all there is to know about what he did or what he has said. But these, these are his names that he picked. And it might be all we need to know about who he is. So hopefully, if you weren't intrigued before, hopefully you're intrigued now. Um, And I hope you are curious about what names you chose. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to review the seven names Jesus picked, and we're going to try and discern uh, why he chose each one. So so what do you say? Let's get started. Okay, so if if you were in John before, you can go to John 6 now. 
If, uh, if you're not, if, you know, finding books in the Bible is hard for you, I put the page numbers in the top right corner. There's a Bible in front of you in the pew. Um, you're welcome to use it. And if you don't have one, you're welcome to take it home. But uh, if you are using one of those Bibles, then the page numbers can help you there at the top. Okay. Now, just one sentence of uh, context before we jump in here. We're looking at the first name. We're about to look at the first name Jesus chose. And he chose this name as the result of an argument, which is always fun to watch other people's arguments. <laughs> and uh, so we're going to step through this argument and see what motivated Jesus to choose this particular name. Okay, so after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Okay, just like today... Jesus came to seek and to save what was lost. Luke 19.10, very popular verse, very true verse. He, Jesus wanted to save these people. He came to seek and to save that which was lost, and he wanted to save these people. He wanted to have a relationship with these people. He wanted them to respond to his love. He wanted them to put their faith in him. But this crowd was not willing. And as we go through, I think you'll come to agree with me there. This, this crowd was not willing. In fact, John tells us right straight up in verse 2 that they followed him not because of the reasons Jesus hoped, but because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And I have no doubt that this disappointed him. This disappointed Jesus. So we're going to skip down a couple more verses to verse 5. And lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd, this is the same crowd, the large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we going to buy bread so that these people may eat? And uh, skip to verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five loaves and two fish. Does this sound familiar? This is the feeding of the 5,000. You've probably heard this before. And then uh, skip again down to verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. Okay, so this is the feeding of the 5,000. We, we've all heard that story. And this is that same crowd. This is that unbelieving crowd. This is, this, this is that um, uh, in-it-for-themselves crowd. This is that keep-God-at-arm's-length crowd. This is that crowd that's much like people today. Um, much like people today. And uh, after they had eaten their fill, their attitudes didn't change. It says, uh, verse 14, when the people saw the sign, he's talking about the feeding of the 5,000 there. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, ah, oh, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, can you imagine... Can you imagine if how great it would be to have a president of the United States that had supernatural powers? No, really. That's the position these people were in. And, and they, made, they made that transition. They, they headed that way. How great would it be if our president could uh, supernaturally fix the deficit or defeat our enemies or make it so that we didn't have to work or would always know the right decision? I mean, to have a, a king, in their case, a king like Jesus would be great. He could, uh, he could provide stuff. He could take care of them. In a, I mean, what an asset. I, I chose that phrase kind of intentionally because I think that was the attitude of their hearts. What an asset this guy could be to us. We could really use a man like that. They were using Jesus, and Jesus knew it. And Jesus knew it. 
And, and Jesus' response to these people is kind of interesting. Here in this very last verse, it says, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. I didn't quote all the verses, but actually what he did was before he withdrew, he, uh, he, dis- he sent his own apostles away. They were near a boat, near a lake. He put them in a boat and he said, you guys go on without me. He sent the apostles off. And then somehow, Bible doesn't tell us, somehow he dismissed the crowd or, or d- exited from the crowd and he went to the mountain by himself. And he prayed, and he prayed a long time, and he stayed there until deep into the night. Now, the crowd didn't actually leave. They stayed put. And, uh, but Jesus went up on the mountain, and he waited until they fell asleep. And sometime deep in the night, uh, when they wouldn't notice, Jesus walked away. He, he left those people. He, uh, it's kind of a, a sobering concept to think that Jesus left that crowd behind. You've got to wonder why. I think the, obvious, the answer is pretty clear. He had, Jesus had been with these people for several days. He had shown them signs. He had taught them. He had fed them. They had heard the gospel, but they had declined to believe. They wanted entertainment and food, like that verse we read at the very beginning. This, this whole event, this going out to see Jesus, was not about Jesus in their minds. It was about them. And, uh, and so finally, Jesus left. All right, so the next morning. So when the, crowds, uh, when the crowds saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, hey, Rabbi, when did you get here? How did you get here? We didn't see you last night. What's the deal? We, lo- we missed you. You know, how did you get here? And Jesus, spinning upon them, says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you, had your, you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Whoa. It's like Jesus kind of snapped at them. And they, they kind of got it. I can't help but think they, did, they did, detected that he was a little miffed and that they had been happy to see him, but he wasn't really happy to see them. And I imagine they were a little taken aback. Well, why? Why was Jesus short with these people? Because they weren't getting it. They weren't getting it. He had told them over and over and they weren't getting it. They were working for food that perishes, is what, in Jesus' own words, do not work for food that perishes. He had told them God's truth. He had confirmed it with miracles. But they were only interested in their own, in, in their own lives, in their own interests, their own needs, their own occupations. Which begs the question, what are your interests? What are our interests? What consumes your time? Where do you spend your energy, your creativity? Where do you spend your money? Is it on things that perish? Foolish things like these people were focused on? And the foolish things that these people were focused on were what a lot of people call real life. You know, rent, kids, family, stuff like that. But Jesus accused them of, uh, of spending their, their time on things that perish. I know I'm often tempted to spend my energy on work, on friends, on hobbies, on uh, grades. Jesus wants us all to look beyond that stuff to see him. And, uh, and here, I hope this convicts us all a little bit, but if you go to work every day, but you don't pray every day, you're working for food that perishes. If you read the internet, but you don't read the Bible, you're working for food that perishes. If you're concerned about what your friends think, or your spouse perhaps, or your, if, you're, if you're concerned about what people think, but you're not concerned as much about what God thinks, then you're working for food that perishes. 
Jesus commands us to work for food that endures to eternal life. Okay, so, so Jesus yells at these people. I'm trying to portray here an emotional encounter because I believe it was. Jesus yelled at these people for being short-sighted and for focusing on worldly issues. And, uh, and he told them instead they should be working for eternal things. So in my imagination, they kind of stammered. And uh, uh, okay, so we, maybe we can get on board with that. So what are those things? What must we do to be doing the works of God? And then Jesus answered them. This is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. But therein, lay, but therein lies the problem. They didn't want to believe in the one whom God had sent. They, they didn't want to uh, believe in or trust in Jesus. They wanted to believe and trust in themselves. They wanted to be the boss. They didn't want Jesus to be the boss. They wanted to, do, they wanted to live their lives uh, their way with his help. Does that sound familiar? Because that sounds like me frequently. I often want to live life my way, but just with the benefits that Jesus might be able to offer me. Sometimes we want Jesus to be like a decoration in our lives, but uh, Jesus won't have it. Jesus just won't be a part of it. He'll walk away. Jesus demands to be central. Jesus demands to be Lord. So Jesus, these people are starting to get it. They're starting to understand not only what Jesus is demanding, but they're starting to own their own emotional response, their own unwillingness to submit and participate. They're starting to understand, but their hearts are still hard and their true colors are starting to come through. And uh, we're going to, and so just the very next verse and, and listen to this verse. So they said to him, so this is in response. They said, well, what do we have to do? And Jesus said, what you have to do is believe in me. And they said, and, and in response to that, they said, well, then what sign will you perform? Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? After all, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. What what did they want? Tell me, tell me, what did they want? Say it louder. A sign. What what Jesus had just finished the day before. Fed them, fed 5,000 people. Right. You know, and it wasn't just a sign. They didn't want just a sign. They wanted a bigger sign. After all, Moses gave bread to the people of Israel. I mean, you only fed 5000. Moses fed the whole nation. You know what else you got? And and it wasn't just a demand for a sign. It was an ultimatum. They they said um, they said, do something bigger and then we'll decide whether to believe you. I mean, that is what they said, right? Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Because after all, we're going to reserve judgment unto ourselves. And you just keep going and then we'll let you know if we want to believe you. What does this tell you about their hearts? This is that same crowd. Would feeding 50,000 have been enough? Would it? Would it? No, it would not. Would 100,000? No. No sign would have been big enough because they didn't want Jesus as king of their hearts. They just wanted what he could do for them. Okay, so let, let's review real quick. Jesus gave up on these people once and he walked away and then they caught up to him and then he rebuked them and he called them shallow. And then they said they might believe if he did a miracle, but it couldn't be just any miracle. It had to be a bigger miracle than uh, giving, mo- than giving a manna to the, whole, uh, to the whole nation of Israel. And by then, Jesus is kind of fed up. I don't want to belittle Jesus. I certainly don't ever want to speak disrespectfully of Jesus. But Jesus had emotions. He was a man just like us. And, it, and when I read this, con- this text, I'm just persuaded, com- convinced that Jesus is fed up at this point with this pe- these people. And he shot back at them. First of all, it wasn't Moses that gave manna to the Israelites. 
Okay, let's just get that straight. It wasn't Moses that gave uh, manna to Israelites. It was, it was God. And it is God now who is giving you the true bread from heaven. I didn't quote that on the screen, but that's what he said. He said, and now it's God who's giving you the true bread from heaven. Who did Jesus mean by that statement? Himself, obviously. We all get that. They didn't get that. They were so fixated on their own personal needs, their own personal interests, the things they wanted, they, th- they thought he was talking about more bread. You know, the true bread that comes from heaven. Oh, there's, there's better bread. There's miraculous bread that you can provide. Oh, well, in that case, sir, give us this bread always. And then Jesus kind of blows his stack. He says, I am the bread of life. It's me. I'm the one. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Life is not about food or kids or your rent or trips or your spouse's health. Or what, Life is not about that stuff. Real life, meaningful life, is about me, is about Jesus. And that is Jesus' first name tag. This is the first and arguably the most important name that Jesus chose for himself. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I satisfy your deepest needs. I make life abundant, meaningful, and eternal. And all other bread is fleeting and is temporary and not worth it. So before we leave this name tag, and this is my favorite name tag, uh, before we leave this name tag, what kind of bread are you working for? And I'll just leave that with you. Okay, and don't get nervous about the rest. They all go much more quickly than this one. So we, ha- we have covered one, and we'll, we'll, get, we'll, we'll knock them all out, I promise. All right, the next name tag. Okay, on the first name tag, Jesus did a miracle. He, he, uh, he didn't heal. He um, fed the 5,000. And then based on that miracle, he, dire- he derived, is that the word? He drew from that miracle. He used it as a launch pad to choose his name. Do you see how they're related? Feeding of the 5,000, bread of life. Well, on the second go-around, he does it the opposite. He works a miracle. And then from, uh, no, did it the other way around. Oh, sec- on the second time, he chose the metaphor. First, and we'll get there in just what it was. He chose a metaphor, and then based on the metaphor, he performed a miracle, which is just kind of an interesting thing for God to do. Okay, so uh, let's go to uh, John chapter... Uh, I'm light of the world. Sorry. That's what I'm heading for. Okay, John chapter 8, verse 12. He says, uh, he says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Okay, now Jesus kind of, if you read this in context, Jesus kind of just jumps right in there. There's not really a transition, at least not one that I can detect. And just out of the clear blue sky, Jesus kind of announces in a public forum, uh, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, again, in context, if you keep reading through John chapter 8, the Pharisees, who, to whom he's speaking at the time, interrupt him. And they engage in this somewhat lengthy and somewhat technical argument about a completely different topic. It's like the Pharisees kind of hijacked his conversation. So Jesus kind of takes a step to the side and he deals with this distraction. That's a, um, I'll let you read it if you want. And, uh, and then the same thing happens, not with the Pharisees, but similarly, Jesus d- is distracted in chapter 8 twice more. So there's three paragraphs. Jesus makes this announcement, I'm the light of the world. And then there's three paragraphs of other stuff. And all the while, in, I can see Jesus eager to get back to where he started. And he gets there in the, in the first, uh, there we go, in the first few verses of chapter nine. So it takes him a chapter, but he comes back because this is important to him. 
And he says, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And then without distraction, now he's like cleared the deck. And without distraction, now he finishes what he began. And he healed the man who had been born blind. You think that's a coincidence? I'm the light of the world, healed the man born blind? No, I think not. Okay, so let's read about that. So after saying this, he, Jesus, spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? He came home seeing. All right. So I'd like to suggest to you that the title Jesus has adopted here, Light of the World, I'd like to suggest that it might be a little more complex and subtle than you or I have thought of in the past. You know, um, uh, we're all very familiar with this claim. We've heard it a lot. And, you know, of course, Jesus is the light of the world. But it kind of befuddled me a little bit when I started thinking about what does exactly mean? What does it exactly mean for Jesus who have claimed to, to be the light of the world? And, of course, the answer I've had ever since I was seven sprang to mind. Well, that's easy. Um, you know, we live in darkness, kind of like that blind guy. And Jesus gives us light. So there you go. Light of the world. But uh, in so saying, am I, did you, in, in, by saying Jesus is the light of the world, does, was Jesus re- trying to communicate that I, uh, I give uh, uh, knowledge to the ignorant? Is, is it really just about information? It, by saying I'm the light of the world, is he saying I'm the source of information? Probably not. You know, it's, it's surely true that Jesus is the source of information, but I, I'm suggesting to you that he probably meant more than, than just that by claiming to be light. Um, uh, it's probably true, but it's probably incomplete. So let's go back. Let's go back to verse 12 where Jesus started before he was distracted. And he said, uh, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So we get some clues from this statement as to what Jesus meant. Have you ever gone for a long walk with your eyes closed? No, it's ridiculous. It's foolish. Why? I mean, you get hurt, you get run over, you get lost. It, it's, it does, just doesn't work. It's, it's altogether futile. And, uh, and, and Jesus could have said, whoever follows me will never be in darkness. But he said, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. So it's kind of interesting. That's something to ponder in your head. And then after he gave us those clues, then he gave us more clues by actually healing the man that was born blind. Now, this man was not, um, this not, man was not completely... Um, uh, incapacitated. This man could speak. This man had friends. This man, it appears as if the remainder of his body worked fine. After all, um, he he made it all the way to the pool, right? Where he had to wash off the mud that Jesus smeared on his face, right? He got there and he got back. Um, So so specifically, how did light, and, and, and I'm suggesting to you that's the same thing as sight in this case, but you know, and, but for this man, how did light really help him? What impact did light have upon this man's life? Well, about a million ways, right? For the first time in his life, he could like go anywhere he wanted to go. Never been done, never done that before. He was born blind. He could do almost anything he could imagine. You know, you know, it's silly things. He couldn't fly, but he probably wanted to run. He can't, he could not run before. But now he could do a hundred things that he could, and then think, think bigger than that. He might get work. He might buy a house. He might have a wife. He might have a family. It's like this, goes, this guy's whole life opened up. 
I mean, the possibilities available to this guy, it's like a door just opened and light streamed in, no pun intended, and, uh, and suddenly he is able to do things that he never dreamt were possible for him, for him to do. Light enabled him to do what he could have never done in darkness. Light restored his potential. You know, he, he had eyes and he let, he had eyes and legs and God, in my opinion, God designed him to see and to run, you know, but he could never do those things in darkness with light. He could. And likewise, we, we have souls and we were designed by God to love him and enjoy him. We can never do that in darkness, but in light we can with Jesus, the light we can. So are you trying to walk in darkness? I don't want to be overly metaphorical here, but if you're trying to walk walk in darkness, it ain't working. I'm sure. I'm sure it ain't working. Have have you given up on your dreams? Dreams that seem to you like they should really be available to anyone. Dreams that seem reasonable that you felt like you were designed as a person to do, but they're just out of your reach. Dreams of a happy marriage. Dreams of a meaningful life. Dreams, I just want to have hope for my future. Dreams of my calling, whatever your calling is, whatever you feel like God's called you to do in your life. You know, have, have you given up on those dreams? Are, are, do you feel like you're just walking in darkness, like there's really no hope for you to achieve these things? Have you given up on the whole God thing because you just can't make it work? Well, Jesus can fix that. In fact, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I rescue people from futility and impotence. I think I might get a tattoo that says that. I rescue, that's a joke. Um, I rescue people from futility and impotence. That just rings so powerfully in my heart. Jesus rescues people from futility and impotence. I, back to Jesus speaking, I can make your life more abundant than you can imagine. He is the light of the world. He restores potential. Okay, so this next name, name number three, is a short one. Um, when you read John chapter 10, we're skipping ahead to John chapter 10, Jesus employs this whole sheep motif, this whole set of story circumstances that has to do with sheep. He talks about a shepherd and a sheep pen and a gatekeeper and sheep and wolves and thieves. And I think that's all. And then, and then he uses these things as illustrations. So let's go to John 10 says, so Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Some translations say gate. I think gates are kind of cool. I like gate better because I don't think sheep use doors. I think, anyway, um, truly, truly, I am the door, the gate of the sheep. All who come before, came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, and don't underestimate this last sentence. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And he will go in and out, and he will find pasture. Um, okay, so in this case, Jesus, he, he, he has this big motif, but he picks the gate. He picks the door. And he says, that's like me. I'm like the gate. And he says, those that use the gate, those that come through me are saved. He doesn't say saved from what, but he says saved. So presumably saved from harm, somehow, somehow helped, saved. And, and they prosper. I know we're scared to use that word in evangelical circles, but I think that's the connotation of going in and out, traveling safety and finding pasture. What do sheep want more than pasture? I can't think of anything. You know, he's just saying, if you come through me, you can, you can prosper. But let's go back to the first part. I am the gate or I am the door. Many men have tried to be the doorway to God. Many men have tried to insert themselves between others and God. 
It never works. Jesus is the gate. This, this starts out, it finishes with a promise, but it starts with a claimed exclusivity. Jesus doesn't say, I'm one of the gates, I'm one of the doors. He says, I'm the gate. I'm the gate. Um, there's no other door to the Father but through Jesus. You know, if you think there's lots of ways to God, uh, you, know, you just need to do your best. And if you're a good person and you, uh, and you try hard and you do your best, then really what else could God want? I mean, God would be happy with that. That ought to be enough. Well, I'm sorry. Jesus disagrees. And, and that's a fact. And, and I'm not trying to be argumentative, but if, if you really believe that, then you've got to square that with Jesus. Because Jesus says, I'm the gate. I'm it. I'm the door. No, you, know, you can't get there unless you go through me. So, as I said a moment ago, this starts with a claim of exclusivity. I'm the gate. I'm it. And then it ends with a promise. If you seek the Father through Jesus, you'll go in and out, you'll be safe, and you'll find pasture. And that's where he picks his name tag. Third name tag on Jesus' chest. He says, I am the gate. There are no other paths to God. And I offer protection. I offer safety. And I offer prosperity. You know, and prosperity doesn't necessarily mean money. It could mean money. I'd be happy for it. You know, honestly, I feel like the Lord has blessed us all financially. I mean, we live in the richest country in the world. But I know people that have a lot less money than I have. And I look at their lives and I go, wow, that is one rich man. That is a prosperous person. So anyway, let's go to the next name tag. So Jesus started with this motif of the sheep. And he's, you know, all these components, shepherds, wolves, shepherds, gates, sheep a couple others, and he continues with this same motif, but he chooses a different element. Instead of saying, I'm like the gate, now he says, I'm like the shepherd. Okay, so let's read that. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves, <laughs> leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. It's quite a claim. Really, quite a claim. You know, uh, I, I didn't point it out because we're trying to go fast, but in this discussion about the sheep, Jesus is talking to his political enemies, the Pharisees. And, and gee, I wonder who he meant when he said, you know, some people aren't legitimate shepherds. Some people act like hired men and don't take, take good care of the sheep and they run away. Jesus is a confrontational person. <laughs> he really is. And he puts it in these guys' face and they know he's talking about them. But then contrastingly, he calls himself the good shepherd. He is not self-serving. He cares for the sheep. In fact, he lays down his life for the sheep. I tell you guys, um, I am honored uh, personally to serve as an elder here at Parkside Bible Fellowship. Um, but I have to confess to you that um, I'm not a very good shepherd. Uh, often, my feelings, and they're about this far below the surface, you know, my feelings and my pride especially conflict with my duties. And, uh, and, and, and I confess that to you, but I also predict that I am not alone in those failings. I'm not talking about the other elders. I'm talking about us. That I am not alone in those failings. And we, all of us, often look to other people to provide us the things we need. And I'm not talking about necessarily things, but to provide us what we need. And sadly, they fail us. Uh, young people, uh, your parents might have failed you already. Uh, and as you get older, 
you will notice more and more mistakes that they made, that we made as parents. Victoria Lee's on that path. And ladies, uh, if you're single, you, you probably rely on a good friend. Uh, and if you're married, ladies, then you likely rely on your husband. But in either case, the person upon whom you rely will fail you, will someday fail to protect you, fail to love you, fail to provide for you in the way that you needed it, and in really in the way they should have, and in the way they could have, but we fail each other. And men, whether you're married or not, sometimes we think we can do it. Whatever it is, we're pretty sure we can do it. And when we fail, we not only fail those we love, which hurts us, but we fail ourselves, which hurts even more. And earlier I said the first one was my favorite name tag. I think this one is my favorite name tag. We all need help from each other. What we really need is a shepherd. And not just any shepherd. We need a good shepherd. We need the good shepherd. And that's why Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I am able. Your husband's not able. Your career's not able. But Jesus says, I am able. I am reliable. I will not let you down. And I am trustworthy. I will care for you. Wow. Praise God. That, that's just fabulous. Jesus says, I will care for you. You know, today, if you are fearful, if you are nervous, if you are insecure for a good reason, take comfort. Jesus is the good shepherd and he will care for you. Okay. So another name. Let me give you a little, more, a little uh, better context for this one. Um, New Testament, or John, obviously. Anyway, there's two sisters and a brother, their family, and they were close friends of Jesus. The three of them were close friends of Jesus. Jesus stayed at their house whenever he was in town. They were like family, the four of them. They were like family. Um, uh, and, and I'm trying, well, anyway, they were. And, and, and when the brother of the two sisters, when he fell deathly ill, the sisters knew Jesus healed people every day. They knew he was tight with their family. All they had to do was tell him, Right? Isn't that what you would think? That's what I would think. And, uh, and they confidently sent word to Jesus. But he did not come. He did not come. And as a result, their brother died. He didn't get like sick. He died. And all because Jesus just didn't come. And I'm sure those two sisters were crushed. And when Jesus finally did arrive at their house, people were at the house uh, and they were mourning with the sisters. It was a, a few days later, in fact. And uh, both sisters, Mary and Martha, went out to greet Jesus, but their greetings were not friendly. In fact, uh, wrong button. There we go. This verse says, Martha said, but both, both women said it. I just didn't quote them both. It says, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What's the message there? Right? And, um, um, and then both lady, um, uh, Right. Both ladies were grieving. They're like emotionally exhausted from this, the death of their brother. And, uh, and then shortly thereafter, um, a few verses later, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, this is an emotional day for Jesus too. And a few moments later, I didn't quote it for you, but a few moments later, maybe not moments, but minutes later, Jesus actually breaks down and cries. You know, that would take a lot. I mean, it would get our attention if you saw a man break down and cry. And he did. And, and what I'm deriving from this, what I'm learning from this, is that Jesus never intended death to happen. 
it was not his idea. It came with the fall. He never intended death to separate us from each other, like the brother from the sisters, or from him. And that's what hell is. Hell is separation from God forever. Jesus never intended that to do it. In fact, that kind of separation, that kind of death, makes Jesus weep. Makes him weep. I mean, just kind of dwell. This is a big deal to God. He wishes that none should perish. 2 Peter 3.9. So, and as a result, Jesus said... I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks a very simple question. Do you believe this? Jesus' name tag says, I am the resurrection and the life. I can deliver you from death. Do you believe this? And do you? That's, that's the application. Do you? Do you believe this? I believe this. I really do. Okay. So this happened. Uh, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have to go there. Anyway, just several days, uh, probably less than a week after this happened, after this event. Uh, Jesus went to, went to Jerusalem with his apostles to celebrate the Passover, which was a special dinner. And he was having this special Passover dinner with his apostles. And um, it was the night of Jesus' arrest, the night prior to Jesus' crucifixion. And Jesus knew this. He knew it. None of the apostles did, but Jesus did. And understandably, Jesus had much to say. This is his last night with the apostles. And he had a lot to say. And, uh, but nonetheless, he made a couple announcements, three announcements, that kind of just blew their socks off around this table. They never saw, the, the apostles never saw these announcements coming. And the first thing he said is, one of you is going to betray me. What? What did you say? I mean, it would be like Brennan taking the church bank account and fleeing to Croatia. We'd all say, what? Are you kidding? What do you mean betray me? He doesn't know the combination, by the way. But I don't think. I made that up. Anyway, the the point is, I shouldn't even have cracked that joke. Sorry, we were doing so well. Um, Jesus makes an announcement that one of you will betray me. And it it sets everybody back. They're just kind of blink, blink. What, What did you say? And then he went on. And he said, furthermore... I'm leaving you, and you can't come. What? What did you say? You're, you're, you, don't really, you didn't mean that. You're leaving? What, what do you mean by that? I'm sure you don't mean you're really leaving, leaving. And then finally he said, and you'll understand this later. And the notion of this whole betrayer thing, I mean, that's a shock, but they can deal with it. They, they have some ideas. They can work on that. We can, we can address that problem. But this notion that Jesus would abandon them after three years together, that was incomprehensible. You know, the apostles were aghast. Like, would he really leave them after all we have been through together? Why now, when we're so close, would Jesus quit? What, what is he thinking? What, does he really mean it? Will he, will, will he really leave now? And then Peter, because he's Peter, he just pipes right up. He says, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. You know, God bless Peter. He's, he's a warrior. He's strong. I will lay down my life for you. And then Jesus, confusing them even more than they're already confused, says, you, you, you know the way to the place where I am going. Sorry. I'll come back to that. He says to them, first he says, I'm leaving. You can't come. Peter says, why can't I come? I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I'll go. I want to come. And Jesus says, well, you know the way to where I'm going. And then Thomas says in response to that, he says what everyone was thinking. 
Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how in the world are we going to know the way? Don't tell us we know the way. We don't even know where you're going. So how in the world can we know the way? And then in my imagination, very calmly, Jesus turns to Thomas and very peacefully says, I'm the way. I'm the way. What do you mean you don't know the way? I'm the way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You don't need to know all the answers. You just need to know Jesus. You don't need to know the destination. You just need to know the way. Does that make sense? You know, perhaps you are like the apostles that night and you are confused and worried about your future. What is school going to be like? What is college going to be like? What is retirement going to be like? What about my health? What about the health of my spouse? What about, um, what about my parents' marriage if you're young or if you're old, I guess? It doesn't matter. What about that thing that you can't solve and you have not a clue on how you're going to get it done? How in the world are you going to pay for that? How are you going to succeed? How are we going to do that? You don't need to know the destination. You just need to know the way. Jesus says, I am the way. Okay, last one. Um, so they're, don't lose context here. They're at the Passover dinner. They're, uh, they're together. And, and Jesus told them they would understand later. And true, he was right, because they certainly didn't understand then. <laughs> and, and Jesus closes the dinner. Okay, boys, we're done. Everybody stand up. And they all walked out and they walked, they took a walk some distance to a garden where Jesus liked to pray. And on the way, on the way to the garden, garden of Gethsemane, on the way, um, Jesus keeps talking. And, uh, and he says, um, and he says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. It's a fairly straightforward metaphor, I think. Um, Jesus is the vine and we're the branches. If your weekends are just too busy for church, you will wither. That, that's, a, that's a fact. If you do not make time for prayer, and, and I get it, I know it's hard to make time for prayer. I'm, I'm there with you. If you don't make time for prayer, your life will wither like a branch disconnected from the vine. To bear fruit, which is what I want, I think all of us want, to bear fruit, to be, live a fruitful life, you have to stay connected to Jesus. And that's his name tag. I am the vine. I'm the vine. You're not the vine. I'm the vine. You're the branch. And I am the source of joy, strength, and fulfillment. So Jesus picked seven names. Seven names. And, and they're all really good names. And all together, maybe those are the only names we need to know about him. Is there more to know about him? Yes. But those seven names, if you're on a desert island, maybe those are the only seven you need. And you'll know who Jesus is if you dwell on those, if you learn those. So if somebody comes to you and says, you know, I hear you go to church. What is this Jesus guy like? What, what's he like? What kind of guy is he? Well, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I meet your deepest needs. I am the light of the world. I rescue you from futility and I restore potential. I'm the gate. I'm the only path to God. I'm the good shepherd. I will care for you. I'm the resurrection and the life. 
I can deliver you from death. I'm the way. I'm the truth. And I'm the life. I can navigate your path. I can get you there. You don't know how to get there. I know. Just stick with me. And I am the vine. I can make your life fruitful. Is that good news? It is good news, in case you're confused. (laughs) That's fabulous news. I hope this uh, impacts you. I hope you are tormented by these words all week long. I hope that uh, these words burn into your hearts. They have for mine. I almost broke down and cried when I talked about the gate. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we honor you and we bless you and you have sent your son to us. What a joy, what a, what a treasure, what an opportunity. We're like blind people and then you show up and you throw open the door and this light streams in and our whole lives get better. The stuff we didn't even dream of, we even know, didn't even know life could be this good. Lord, we bless you. you, you we bless you and I, I bless you for sharing these names with us, Lord. You really are the, you really are the bread of life. Apart from you, I'll always be hungry. And you're the light and you're the gate, the only gate. You are my good shepherd, Lord. There's lots of people that I'd like to trust and depend on and they're good people and they try hard, but they're they're no shepherd, Lord. You are the good shepherd. You're my shepherd. And you are gonna rescue me from death, the ultimate thing that I can't control, the thing that uh, that we all fear. You are there for me. You are the resurrection. And even on this earth, uh, the millions of little things that, that intimidate me and frighten me and I can't solve, I don't have to solve them, Lord. I just have to know the way. You are the way. And I trust you. I trust you with my future. And, uh, and Lord, I want to live a fruitful life. I want to stay connected to you because you are the vine. Lord, I pray for me and I pray for my church that, uh, that we would remember your names and that we would bless you this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.